I'm someone that's worn my heart on my sleeve for so many years. I say it as I see it. It's got me in trouble an awful lot. I have inflicted a bit of pain in the Ryder Cup. I get it. Because of that, you know, some, some fans like to, to try and get under my skin and obviously say, say nasty things. But I guess that comes with the territory and what's, what's obviously happened. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This is Alan Shipnuck. When we launched The Knockdown, I made a little mental list of my dream guests for this podcast series, and I'm pretty sure the top two names are Phil Mickelson and this guy to my immediate right, Ian Poulter, who against his better judgment has consented to, uh, to sit down for his first ever podcast. Just to set the scene for you at home, um, next door to Poulter's Art Deco mansion here in Lake Nona, Florida, Uh, There's another house, it looks like a house, but he calls it his museum and office. It houses his collection of Ferraris and other automobiles and a lot of his golf memorabilia. There's meeting spaces, an industrial kitchen to host events, and just outside these sliding glass doors next to us, a bunch of gents are scurrying around setting up for a party tonight. It's Monday of uh, Arnold Palmer Invitational Week. A lot happening here in Orlando. Anyway, let's get to the good stuff. First of all, Ian, thank you so much for uh, saying yes. You're very welcome. So I've talked to your caddy, I've talked to some players, I've been squirreling away anecdotes um, about your life and times. And I think my favorite one comes from the 2008 Open Championship. Okay. Um, You know, people forget that you you went out an hour ahead of Pudrig and... Uh, played Greg some Norman. and Greg Norman, yeah. Oh, by the way, Greg Norman played some great golf around the turn, top the leaderboard the whole way. You come to the 18th hole, you basically have a 15 footer. Um, you know, Pudrick has four holes to go. You guys are tied for the lead. It looks like this putt could be for the Open Championship, and so you call Terry your caddy over, and and yeah. and what happens at that point? Tell me that story. So. Uh... I, he hasn't really read many putts um, in the 72 holes, but it was kind of a funny moment um, because I chipped it onto about 15 feet and, um, you know, normally I'll go and mark it, I throw him the ball, he'll throw, it, throw the ball back for me to replace it and I called him over and I said, Terry, um, you know, come here and, you know, he's probably thinking at the time why do I need to get involved with a 15-foot putt? That's going to be pretty significant. So anyway, he kind of gingerly walks over and says, yeah. And I said, uh, do you ever hit putts on a putting green as a, as a, as a boy and have, um, have that putt? And you say to yourself, this is, this is for the Open Championship. And he kind of says, yeah. I said... Well, I've got it now. Sod off. So, um, <laughs> of which he he kind of shakes his head, laughs, walks off, and then I I um, do the cheeky thing and actually roll that putt in. Um, it would have been an even better story had had Paddy not gone on the berserk uh, run that he did, and um, you know, birdie, you know, or shoot three or four under in the last kind of five or six holes. What compelled you to, to wind up your caddy at that moment? 
I don't know. I get. I guess it was kind of, um, you know, it's kind of a way to kind of, you know, diffuse the situation. You know, it was definitely it was a big moment. Um, it was a, you know, I knew it was going to be a big moment. I, may it have been a way to have taken some of the pressure away, probably. <laughs> um, but it's something, you know, we we've got that kind of rapport going, um, and have had for a long time, where we try and. We try and have a laugh on the golf course. We try and um, we try and make fun of you know certain situations, whether they be good or bad. Um, you know, he often he often says you know silly things on the course when I haven't taken things very well. You know, he might turn around and say, "Oh, well, you've you know you've you've taken that really really well, haven't you?" <laughs> you know, while I'm in that moment of being really angry, kind of you know he kind of tries to uh, to to diffuse the situation. So we've got. We have a great relationship. It's something that's now going for 11 years, um, and we've, you know, we've had many instances, I think, through the years like that, um, which are just funny moments. See, I would think that would almost increase the pressure because if you miss the putt, you really look like a winker. But well, you you might, you might. Uh, that's a very English way to put it. But I mean, I <laughs> guess, you know. Um, I just think I just think you have you have to break the ice sometimes. It, it can be way too serious on the golf course. Yeah. Um, you know, it's you know, fifteen footer. It's probably a thirty percent conversion rate, forty percent. Um, so you've kind of got like a one in three chance of holding it. Just think it's quite nice to have a, to have a bit of a bit of a sense of humour whilst you're. Um, while you're out on the golf course. I mean, I think that's what separated you when you were at your best was that, that self-belief. And now, now you're scuffling a little bit, um, trying to get back from injury. How many cortisone shots did you have on your foot last year? Um, I had, well, I kind of spaced out in a, in a period of about four months, uh, five months. I kind of had uh, about four or five, um, which was, it was hard to take. It was a bit, a bit annoying. Um, didn't realize at the time when I took the first one, um, you know, how bad the foot was going to, was going to get. I thought there was just a tiny, tiny bit of, uh, fluid between, uh, between the first and second toe. And then, uh, it was later on when I had to take another MRI to, uh, diagnose, um, the arthritis. So yeah, frustrating, really frustrating. So you were hurt, you tried to play through it, you eventually shut it down for the year, now, now you're, you're trying to get your status back. It sounds like you're working as hard as ever and, and you're playing tee to green pretty well, but you're just not, you're not scoring. And when, when you lose that belief and that, 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 that sense that you're going you're gonna to make every putt you have to, how, how difficult is it to get it back? Well, I mean, it sounds funny. I mean, you, you know, I, I do believe I'm going to hold every putt. Uh, I played well this week. And, um, you know, even, even yesterday's round, clean, no bogeys, uh, two birdies, uh, a few opportunities, I would have said, um, you know, to really help my round of golf. Um, you know, Mr. Mr. You know, four foot nine inch putt on, um, on the fifth hole. Um, so that that was a little frustrating. So I've missed a couple of putts, but I don't I don't think I'm not going to hold the putts. You know I don't I don't 
you know, I, I go into every part. I go into, you know, my, my mindset, you know, really hasn't changed a lot. Um, and I have to stay, I have to stay positive uh, and focused on the good stuff because the good's really good. Um, and I'm happy with my game. I'm really, I'm really happy. I'm content on the course. You know, uh, obviously I'd like to hold a few more putts. Uh, I'd like to not make the odd mistake. But that's no different to how I was playing two, three years ago. I may have converted a few more putts a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm happy where I'm at with my game. So at 41, what still motivates you to try and climb back to the top of the mountain yet again? Uh, just the inner belief that I think there's, there's more good in, in me. Um, I don't feel finished at all. Uh, and I do, I do feel like I've got, um, you know, a lot of good years left. I feel because I kind of started a little late, I, st I still feel fresh enough to go and play. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not one of the guys that, you know, managed to get a tour card at 17, 18 years old and, you know, had the extra mileage. I feel like a young 41-year-old, um, albeit, you know, my first, my first year on tour was 2000. You know, I still, I still feel like I've got plenty of time left. And, you know, playing difficult golf courses, playing as well as I played last week, you know, highlights to me that I've, you know, I've still got quite a bit of game left. Are you motivated by the naysayers uh, who exist on Twitter and elsewhere? No, I've I've kind of um, I've kind of stopped reading, uh, stopped reacting, uh, stopped really getting involved. Um, you know, you 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 know only too well um, our conversation we had a year ago. Um, you know, I don't. You know, you 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 can perhaps go over the you know the the tweets that I've that I've kind of done in the last 12 months and it's been very different. Yeah. I'm not reacting, I'm just immediately blocking. Any negative comments, just get an immediate block. Uh, I don't react to those comments anymore. Um, you know, any negative comments at all, I just, I just block, you know. I'm quite happy to do that. I think obviously everyone's free to say whatever they want. Everyone's opinion is their own opinion. Um, and they've got the right to say whatever whatever they like. If I object to it or don't like it, um, I just don't have to allow them to to be able to to read my my tweets, and I will stop them from doing so. I mean, you've battled more trolls than the guys in Lord of the Rings. So, what what inspired this uh, this new kind of approach to how you're going to handle? Well, it doesn't it? work, does it? I don't think so. So. <laughs> Um, I guess I guess as you as you uh, as you grow a little older and wiser, um, you know you start to realise that. And um, I've certainly made me I mean I've made too many mistakes on social media, way too many. Um, and you know if I sit back and think about it, it's a no-win situation. You know people don't people don't really care um, they well there's a lot of people that do care but there's also you know there's also unfortunately a large proportion that really don't want to hear moaning um, any um, any controversial comebacks 
And that's something I've learned from social media. You know, they, they're quite happy to be able to say their piece, but it's very difficult for you to say yours without them, you know, looking at it in a different light. So it's, it's a no-win situation. Whatever you say or whatever you do, it's a no-win situation. So you might as well just block or just completely ignore. Do you think that that negativity affected your golf in any way? No, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't say it affected my... Um, no, I mean, I've, I've had some difficult issues and difficult times um, on social, which has... Well, it's affected me. I don't know whether it's affected me on the golf course. It's definitely affected... Um, and wasted my time. That's what it has done. Yeah. It's wasted my mental energy. So it's wasted time. You know, the, the issue at Tampa last year, right. um, you know, was, was a highlight of just a complete waste of energy. You know, being abused, being verbally abused on the course. Um, and obviously my, my highlighting my highlight in the fact of someone abusing, um, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't say anything wrong. I just highlighted the fact that, you know, I thought it was pretty uncalled for. Um, and then I turn out to be the, you know, the, the nasty one. You know, someone lost their job. I, don't, I didn't want anyone to lose their job. I just, you know, highlighted the fact of it's okay for someone to abuse, but I find it strange. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm now... I'm now the villain. But you didn't think there'd be ramifications for calling this guy out? Um, well, I, kn I knew it might cause some issues, but it caused me issues on the golf course. Yeah. So it caused me an issue. Um, it was detrimental to my game. It was detrimental to my, you know, my living, my livelihood. Um, you know, so I didn't know what the ramifications were going to be. But obviously, you know, it's disappointing. You know, not, I don't intend to have someone lose their job. Yeah. But, um, you know, I lost a level of income that week. But obviously that's okay because we're sports, we're, we're sports people. So that's okay. You can abuse. <laughs> said, with a, said with a smile. An well, yeah, I mean, like, 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 you know, um, I, guess I, should, I guess I should learn to just ignore it, laugh it off. Uh, if that's what people want, if that, you know, if 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 that's what's going to happen, and if that's if that's seen as being okay in sport, then I I have to laugh it off. You're in a tough spot. I agree. It's a no win. There is no win. In any, there's just a no win. So I've kind of tried to learn the no win situation. That was one of them that I wish, you know that. The bit that upset me most was my uh, my eleven at the time my eleven year old son was there, and he he was um, he was crying because he heard it he heard the abuse, and uh, Katie had to try and explain to him that unfortunately, you know, in, in an environment where people can drink for multiple hours um, and they're in they're in a group, unfortunately, you're going to get a couple of people that you know might might say something which, um, you know, which perhaps they probably probably shouldn't. Um, but that's the reason why I reacted. I found it hard, you know, to be able to, you know, see, see my son upset. He didn't, he didn't understand. He's 11 years old. He doesn't, he doesn't understand why that person should have said that. So that's why I, that's why I got as frustrated as I did yeah. because it upset my son and my, 
Katie had to explain to Luke the reasons for that. Well, it goes back to my question, wondering if, if your, your Twitter life has affected your golf life. Because you take a guy like Phil Mickelson, who's very polarizing. Phil, Phil doesn't get abuse. Well, partly because... Phil, 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 listen, I love Phil. If I, if, I was to go to a, if I was to go to a golf tournament, there's only a handful of players I'd go and watch, which sounds really bad, right? <laughs> no, but, I get it. I do that for <laughs> okay, a living. <laughs> so so Phil, Phil's one of those guys, yeah. right? Um, he's just one of those guys. He, he's a guy you love to go and watch play golf. Um, you know, he's been a fan favorite for, for, for many, 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 many years. He plays predominantly in America. Um, so therefore, you know, Phil is a huge fan favorite. You know, he's, he's not going to get, um, he's not going to get the abuse. And Phil is going to get respected when he flies across the pond and plays in the Open Championship. Um, you know, fans, fans have, a, have a level of understanding of golf um, and they respect players like Phil for, for traveling to play golf. I guess in my instances, I'm someone that's worn my heart on my sleeve for so many years. Um, I say it as I see it, and unfortunately, it's got me in it's got me in trouble an awful lot. I have inflicted a bit of pain in the Ryder Cup. I get it, um, and because of that, you know, some some fans like to to try and get under my skin and obviously say say nasty things. But um, I guess that comes with the territory and what's, what's obviously happened. But I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's right. But, you know, F Phil, hasn't, Phil hasn't had anything, you know, anything to do with social media. Well, that, that was my point, is if Phil was on social media, he would get a lot more negativity because... I don't think he will. Oh, I disagree. I mean, if he was, you know, he has a very big lifestyle. If, if he was posting stuff about that and if he was winding people up because he likes, he likes to apply the needle... But he but, doesn't, though, does he? Phil doesn't wind anyone up. Phil doesn't. Phil doesn't. A lot of people keep their lives very private off the golf course, which Phil does. That's, that's Phil. I mean, that's, that's, how he's, that's, how he's, um, that's how he's done it. I've done it a different way. Uh, good or bad, you know, I've done it, I've done it different. Well, maybe some of the detractors don't know how far you've come. They, they don't know the whole story. So... How? I think they do, but I think they're bored of it, to be honest. I'm not they, bored of and it. They see, and they see right past it. And that's, that's a shame. You know, I, uh, would, I, would I have loved, you know, given my time again with social media, would I have done it different? Yes. I would have done it exactly how certain other players have done it. I'm not naming names. I'm not going to. It's not fair. But hand over their Twitter page to someone that writes and replies to people uh, and that the person actually has no idea what they're writing or replying. I wish I'd done it. I wish I'd been fake. I wish Ian Poulter, given my time again, had paid someone to be creative, to liaise with the fans um, and be fake. But I haven't. I've tried to be <laughs> me. And unfortunately, by being me, I've paid the price. And that price is, um, you know, said things I shouldn't have said, got into confrontation where I didn't need to, and it's and it's a problem. So um, I'd love I'd love to have that time again and just be hidden myself away, not shown my my whole hand to everyone, and just made it up, just been fake, 
you know. Something to aspire because, to. Because it would have, it would have, uh, it would have been in my interest to do so. So don't tell me who the players are. Just give me their initials. No, I don't need to. Just the initials. No, don't need to. I, n I never will. I'm not. I'm not naming names. So disappointing. I'm not naming names. Listen, you or me. Listen, I'm not throwing people under the bus here. I'm just telling you that, you know, um, there are a few smarter people out there than me. That's all I will say. <laughs> okay. We have our first scoop of this podcast. No, listen. I. I mean, I'm. I haven't been smart, have I? I mean, if you if you look at it. Um, you know, as confrontational as I've been, and I have been through the years, it's not—it's not smart. It's not—it's not a—it's not, not a good play. Put it this way: yeah. it's not a good play. You guys like it because it's confrontational. Um, that creates stories. It creates a bit of issue, which all you guys seem to love—all the gossip and <laughs> all that stuff. But um, I'm bored. I've got to be honest with you. I'm bored of that. Yeah, I'm over it. But don't you remember, I've tried to counsel you on Twitter about how to react to I wouldn't to really things. say you counseled me. I would say you was, um, um, they're still on my phone. I mean, we, uh, I'm not going back over them, but, um, you know, it's... Um, I was trying know, to help. We've had a love-hate relationship, should we say that? I mean, it's been, you know, I, I think... Um, I think, I mean, I... You know, I just think I should stop reading stuff. All right, fair enough. Well, <laughs> I really should because it's just, you know, at times you guys are a little unfair. At times, it's part right? of our, part of the job. It's part of your job, but I could turn around and think you're a complete whatever, <laughs> right? Which I'm not going to say, right? And then you know, sometimes I think, is that really him? Is that really what he's like, or is he just writing that just because it's it becomes newsworthy? Because it happens, and there's several people that you know you could say that about. But do I think they're bad people? No, I think they're bad people. I just think they can't help themselves, and they love to throw the juicy story out there. And you know, it it's not good. Doesn't do, it doesn't do me any good, don't do you any good, doesn't do anyone any good apart from the reader who rubs his hands together and reads a little story and thinks, and then, you know, the stories get elaborated. So it's just a no-win situation. <laughs> okay. Well, my job is to service the reader. Of course, of course. You're doing your job. Um, it's just at what cost. But, okay. That, that's a valid critique. So my point about how some of, some of the, the haters don't really know your story, let's just go over it briefly. How bad a golfer were you when you turned pro? Well, I played off four handicap. So I, um, I wouldn't say I was a bad golfer. I just <laughs> said I was at a level where, you know, a four handicap golfer, um, as a PGA player, can, can turn pro, yeah. right? As, a, as someone that wants to get his you know, his PGA membership going, that under their rules is a four handicap golfer. So I was a four handicap golfer. I got my handicap down to four when I was 17. I didn't play another amateur tournament until I, I didn't play an, an amateur tournament for two years. Why? Um, the boss, my boss in the shop was charging me to play competitions. So I'd have to pay a green fee and an entry fee. And at the time, you know, I would evaluate, you know, 10% of my, of my salary that week was going to have to pay for a round of golf. 
at the club that I work at was a little bit extortionate. So I decided that instead of playing a monthly medal or some competition at the club, I would um, I'll just go and practice instead because range balls were free. You had to pay a greens fee for the club at which you worked. Hmm. That's yeah, kind of Ch Chessfield Downs. That's kind of messed up. Yeah, it's um, yeah. That was messed up. That was my yeah. That was my first wake up call to having to uh, having to work under someone that wasn't really a very nice boss. And so two years go by. You, you hit a million. You hit a million range balls. Your your game accelerates, but you're still not making very much money. I mean, at some point, Katie was supporting you, right? She's well, working yeah, as a she nurse. Was, uh, well, I met Katie just after I guess just after I you know turned pro, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would have been earning $200 a week from the age of uh, 16 up until the age of 23. So that salary really wasn't an awful lot when you factor in, I've bought a car, I've got to insure it, I have to fuel it, service it, get to work. Um, you had to insure the Vauxhall? The Vauxhall was insured and it cost me more than the value of the car. <laughs> Yes, the heap of shit that I was driving cost me more to insure than it did to buy. Um, so yeah, so Katie, I mean, she paid for you know once we once we kind of moved in together, she would pay. She paid all the bills. She paid the mortgage. I got some uh, some groceries during the week. That was about all I could afford. Um, and then I made my money up from playing tournaments. So I play I play uh, an East Region event, and. Um, pay my entry fee, which was probably $25. And, you know, I'd done, I'd done pretty well in the region. Played my first event and won 1,500 pounds. And realized two days, two days of hard work on the golf course. In fact, you shouldn't say hard work because someone will turn and say, you don't even know what work is. But, um, <laughs> but you're not going to read so, the comments anyway, so don't worry about so it. I'm not, so I don't really give a shit. Um, so two days on the golf course paid me 1,500, which was the equivalent of uh, seven weeks' work. So I'd done the math, realised that playing is, is a bit better than, uh, you know, um, opening the shop at six o'clock in the morning and going home at seven at night. There was, there was a member, Andy Day, who staked you with some money, right? And how, yeah, Daisy. How, how have you repaid him? This is a, this is a cute story. I, um, Andy's a, he's a dear friend. In fact, he, you know, we, we, uh, we message most weeks and, and have done ever since an early age. But he, he helped me out with some cash. Uh, to play in some some events, and I don't believe there is a Masters that he's never attended. On your he, tickets, he's been yeah he's been he's been to I think he's been to every single. He stays in the house. We have a great time. You know, we have a friends and family house, and you know he's been there. I think he's been there every single every single Masters. He's often at every Open Championship. You know, That's he, a great investment, 1,500 pounds for a lifetime supply of master's tickets. I think most yeah, people would done, take that. Uh, he's, he's done all right. He's done all right. He's, he's, um, he's been nice. You know what? For someone to, to, to help me back in the day uh, when I really needed it, um, you know, to have him follow my career as closely as that, it's been really nice. You know, he's seen it from day one. Um, so absolutely, I want, him, I want him there, you know, to, to enjoy the ride. 
So from 2000 to 2012, you won a dozen events in, in nine different countries, two WGCs. When you look back on those victories, which one is the sweetest? Which will be the sweetest out of all of them? Um, well, I think the two WGCs. I think they were. I think they were really. I mean, for me, they were big wins. They were obviously the most valuable wins in terms of uh, exemption status. So I think from that from that perspective, they were um, they were strong fields, and um, you know I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm proud that you know I've managed to. I've managed to do that. Every win I've enjoyed, whether it be uh, the Italian Open or Morocco, or you know, they're all they're all very very special. Um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to you know really choose one of them because they're all special for their own reasons. Uh, so obviously, we have to talk about the Ryder Cup, and um, people probably forget you lost two of your first three matches across you know '04 and '08. But when, when I think about your Ryder Cup career, we'll get to Medina, but Saturday afternoon at Valhalla, that might be the, the best match I've ever witnessed in person. It was you and G-Mac against Furyk Kenny Perry. And, and Kenny Perry. He was playing on, you know, in, in Kentucky and, and all that. Give me a few memories from that match, and, and especially the, that, the 18th hole. I think, you know, I, I remember, obviously, you know, for, for Kenny Perry being at home, huge support. Um, Furyk, someone who's played, you know, who had played a number of Ryder Cups up until that stage. You know, GMAC, you know, we, we knew it was going to be a really tough match. And, you know, it turned out to be that we was up on the front nine. Um, and then, you know, it, it was really the back nine that really started to come alight. I think Jim Furyk on his own ball was five under par. Kenny, um, Kenny chipped in when, you know, not literally chipped in, but, you know, when Furyk wasn't in position, Kenny was. And, you know, we, uh, we managed to dovetail nicely around that back nine. Uh, hang on when we needed to hang on. GMAC hole in um, an amazing putt on 16 from about 20 feet, 25 feet to halve the hole. I remember on 17, hole in a... Jim Fury could just hit a lovely shot just inside where I was. He hit it to about 10 feet, and I think I was behind the hole about 15 feet. He was on a similar line. I remember rolling my putt in thinking, you know, this is, this is our chance to win the match because it was a big moment, it was a big putt, and, um, you know, to hold that putt at that timely moment, you know, Jim stepped up to be the you know, the hard cookie that he is and roll his straight in on top, which we couldn't believe, mm -hmm. although you probably should believe he did it. Um, and then it was going up going up the last hole. Uh, I didn't hit a, a, a particularly good second shot, come up just short of the green, about 40, 50 yards. But I remember hitting a, hitting a lovely pitch to probably five feet just behind the hole. So I've got like a very tricky, quick downhill, mm -hmm. downhill putt. Um, and I obviously remember rolling that in and kind of doing the signature fist pump, uh, eyeball popping, kind of raw. That, that's been uh, one of my little uh, celebrations in the Ryder Cup. Um, but the match was incredible. I mean, from start to finish, it was strong. 
the back line was even stronger. You know, putts going in on top of each other. It was it was crazy. Well, I've I've heard you describe that shot into eighteen as one of the best of your life. Well, it will be. I mean, it you know it was a it was a timely moment to have a you know to to pitch it. It was on a tight lie. Um, to you know to hit that little pitch to you know four or five feet. You know, was pretty. The putt was easier than 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 the pitch up for sure. I mean, was that the moment when when the Ryder Cup just was burned into your bone marrow? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was a good. I think it was a good moment. I think it was. It was. It was my understanding that the Ryder Cup was probably a bit was a bit more fun than I probably realised. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, the first Ryder Cup in '04 was. Um, I'm not going to say it was easy, but like we got you know, Europe from a perspective of winning. It was a very comfortable win very early. Um, and I think the American team struggled that week. We all know what happened that week and Tiger Phil being paired together wasn't really the, the right combination. Um, so I think that week really wasn't the, you know, the best from an, an experience perspective. I only played one match before uh, my singles match and... You know, I, I managed to lose that match. Um, so, you know, I didn't really get the full volume of what of what the Ryder Cup was about until until Kentucky. Yeah, and yet, when you look back, that was not a great week for the Europeans. How would you describe Nick Faldo's captaincy? Uh, you'd love me to, to, to you know, I. I'm not going to say, you know, it, look, it's so difficult, right? Because Nick's a friend. Uh, he chose me to play. And, you know, I think I repaid him uh, for my pick. I validated my pick. Um, I'm sure if Nick had his chance again, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he would have done it different. So I'm not going to sit here and you know, tell you it was a terrible week, which I know is exactly what you want on these podcasts. I can't do it. You know, Nick's a friend. Um, I think there's been enough said. It's, it was very difficult is a winning captain and a losing captain. Um, you know, it's, it's hard because you can, you can kind of get away with a win as a captain and not have done the best job, but it's, it doesn't matter. Are we talking about woozy here? No, I'm not, no, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving you any, I'm just saying, that I wasn't even, I wasn't even at that Ryder Cup. So I don't know, but what I'm saying is, you know, you could very well have a, have a captain, that's a winning captain, didn't do as good a job as what people may have thought, but it's irrelevant, he won. There's no, there's not nothing bad gonna, you know, be said about his captaincy. Right. Because Nick lost, because it was, you know, because Europe had a, you know, had um, it was the first time in a while that Europe that Europe had lost the Ryder Cup. Then obviously it was going to be tough. And Nick's had a an inter- interesting time with the media through the years, right? So Indeed. I think, so I think people, I think the, you know, the media chose their their moment. They, they waited a while 
and they obviously, you know, they obviously got out what they wanted to. But so it's tough, you know. Did he do the best job? No, I don't think he did the best job. I'm not going into I'm not going into details of how I think he could have done it better. He he knows. He knows how he could have done a better yes, job. Yes, but the listeners don't know, Ian. No, they don't know, and I'm not giving you... Oh, it's to the listeners. Giving, I'm not giving you that shit, so I'm not... It's not <laughs> happening. I don't, I don't want to be the one... Again, there's going to be no win situation if I say something that upsets someone. I don't want to upset anyone. So you're not going to get it. Listeners, you're not having it. So, you know, the fact is, look, he definitely, definitely, definitely would have done a few things different. Such as? Such as I'm not telling you. So... <laughs> Unfortunately, you'll be like, damn it. I thought this was going to be a brilliant interview, but now you've been, now you've been like sitting on the fence. You know, it's, it's tough. It's a difficult situation um, because, yeah, it's, you know, he could have had more help uh, from a perspective of vice captains. He chose not to. Um, you know, I don't think the, the information was as um, forthcoming. Um, I don't think the speech was quite as good as what he would have thought. You know, recreate the speech just so I know what you're talking. Well, about. he made he made he made a, you know he made a few mistakes in the speech. Uh, it wasn't the most polished of speeches, I'll say that much. <laughs> you know, probably if you, you know, if 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 it if you haven't rehearsed it enough, then you you're going to find you know there's going to be a few problems. What were those problems exactly? You're fishing, aren't you? I'm not fishing. I'm not fishing. You live on a lake. You should be a fisherman. You're not. I'm not. Fi- I'm not. I'm not playing fishing games. I'm not playing the fishing games. You know. Listen. You know the mistakes he made. Uh, it was aired to enough to enough viewers. They understand. All right. Let's move on. Let's go for you that. You have such a dark view of the media. No, I don't. It's just your job. Your your job is a very difficult job, right? Because um, unfortunately, if you say something bad about me then I'm going to think you're something, right? So, and unfortunately, you've said a couple of things, right? <laughs> so I've always got to be on my guard. Like, unfortunately, I, we always, 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 always have to be guarded in some way, shape or form. Because no matter what we say, whether it be good or bad, if you only take a sentence, and the reason I say this, I've been stung too many times. Yes. Right? My fingers have been burnt. I've said things through the years and when you say it in a whole, you know, in a whole conversation, if you just take one sentence out of that, it could, it could change how you've tried to explain something. Sure. Right? And the, me- the media are brilliant at that. They're just brilliant. <laughs> they're brilliant. They're more, they're just, they're way more educated than I would be because I just, I say things as they are, and then if you just take a little snippet, they sound really bad. And it's just caused me so much problems. You know, just me and Tiger. That, you know, the one instance right there. What context was left out of that quote? That would Well, the whole thing was, you know, I was talking about the world ranking situation. My world ranking was improving. You know, I was a person that always viewed the world rankings on my computer. And I said, you know, if I live up to my potential, I would like to read the world rankings as I read. And you always look at the top and scroll down. And, uh, you know, as I tried to explain it in my uneducated terms, you know, um, 
I would have liked it to have read Tiger and then myself, right? As you read down the world ranking. Could I ever get to Tiger's number one spot? No, right? Because he was so far ahead of Phil and Phil was the second best player in the world. So I think, um, you know, how I explained it probably wasn't as good as what it could have been. Yes. And therefore, if you take just a small snippet, just me and Tiger, you get slaughtered for three years and your fingers are burnt and you hate that and then you and then you find yourself guarded against the people that write that stuff because you feel unjust because you never said it in that way I don't care about the haters I'm over them okay I'm over them it's okay you can say what you want I just block okay. you're gone I get it I get it's okay so, so since the, the man with the, the blower made an appearance on the podcast, what is this party you're setting up for in the backyard? Uh, I, have a, uh, I have a MasterCard um, evening this evening. So um, very, you know, I'm very proud to have MasterCard come in uh, to the museum. There's a, there's a fantastic commercial that we filmed two weeks ago, which is obviously going to be aired tonight for the for the directors um and it will be here inside uh, on our tvs have uh, some photos gmax come in so we've got it's a nice private event how many people are going to be here it's probably 40 ish um of mastercard people and then we've obviously got the staff from mastercard as well so we're we're here in the museum tell me what your vision is for this place uh, my vision for the place is to, um, I created a facility uh, where I can entertain corporate clients and um, obviously I have my office here so, you know, any any kind of conference stuff that I need to do, I have a conf proper conference room, um, you know, I can kind of get away from the golfy thing and just do my business business. Um, but this is really to entertain clients, private clients. And how many Ferraris are in here? I lost count. One, two, three, four. There's a ten. And a Bugatti. Ten. Yeah, the Bugatti's not mine, but it's a, it's a friend of mine's. Does he does he pay to park it here? Do you charge him a monthly no, rate? No, he. Um, no, I mean it's we we have a, <laughs> we have an agreement. We have a good. You uh, get to drive it to agreement. the grocery store once yeah. in a while. No, I don't. I don't drive it at all. I'm not sure that the average fan recognizes how much you've done in the business world. I remember asking you one time, you're playing a, a really heavy scheduling up to the U.S. Open. I said, why are you playing Memphis? You should take that week off. And you said, well, I have a, I have a business that ships internationally uh, merchandise, and it's good to... Not anymore. Not no, anymore. Well, I've just, right. just, I've just closed the doors. No, we'll get to that. But, <laughs> but, you know, FedEx was the sponsor, and you were there to... As, it was more of a business thing than a golf thing, if, if I took that correctly. Yeah, there's always, I think there's always opportunities. Um, and I think there's, there's always ways to think outside the box. And golf is a sport which we obviously play for a living. But I think um, golf is also a sport from a business perspective that it's one of the only sports in the world that you can actually play with a client or a corporate guest uh, or a business um, and have good quality time you get to know the people the person the client um, and you can interact you can teach them 
you can have a proper game, you can be competitive against someone because of the handicap system, and there's not many other sports in the world that you can actually do that. So, um, you know, I've always looked past golf and tried to look at other areas where, you know, there are opportunities to, um, to entertain, uh, to look after clients, to teach, um, because I think, you know, golf has, you know, given us that opportunity. I think it would be silly to miss. So you show up in Memphis and FedEx gives you a better rate on shipping your, your pants? Oh, we tried. We tried. <clears throat> you know, we, we, we tried to work on, on a deal, um, you know, which is good. I mean, FedEx, you know, I shipped all my stuff with, with FedEx um, or most stuff with, with FedEx through, through the years. So, so obviously you mentioned that, that IJP no longer exists as a clothing company. I know you're a stubborn guy and you probably held on longer than you should have. Why, why close the doors now? I think, you know, the business was rolling for just over 10 years. And, um, you know, we were at a situation where uh, we'd put enough investment into the business. Um, I think we had the product where we wanted it to be, but obviously the distribution wasn't. So from a perspective of where we were at in terms of, sales you know to think we'd done 20 million dollars of sales in 10 years uh, to some people would sound acceptable but unfortunately it's not acceptable in a in a in a business world that we live in today um, you know if you <clears throat> if you work on a 30 percent profit margin uh 20 million dollars gives you six million dollars of of say profit, but that's not profit when you try and net out all of the expenses. Staffing costs over 10 years, you know, at times we were up to kind of 14 staff, designers, uh, graphic designers, um, people that run the website for us, um, warehousing, electricity, you know, if you minus all of the, all of the costs, I took not one penny out of the business. It was a zero. So, um, did you lose money? Yeah, my my investment, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What was yeah. that? Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not giving numbers, uh, but it was it was a lot of money. It was it was it was a lot of money, um, which is a real shame. It's um, you know it's a sh it's, it's a shame. I think um, for me it was a shame to let staff go, and I think when I um, you know, when I think about how many good staff we really had through the years um, and, you know, a good core of staff that believed in the brand, that wanted to work really hard uh, and did work really hard and to, you know, to let those people go was the toughest thing that we probably had to do in the business. We tried to restructure it a couple of times. Um, obviously, you started it in 2006 and then obviously 2008 happens was obviously difficult. So we, we weathered that storm, uh, made more investment into the business. Um, but yeah, it's tough, it's, it's really difficult. It's, it's a hard market to grow in. Uh, there's a lot of competition. Um, and because of that, it, it's not easy. You know, I, the little work that I really had to do, <clears throat> um, I really loved. I loved understanding the business side of, um, of what IJP Design did. 
um, you know, I, it, it was really hard to let it go. Re really, really tough. But you, know, you have to realize that if you're running a business and it breaks even, it's, it's just not quite good enough. You know, we shouldn't have a business 10 years in that breaks even. Um, it's not acceptable. You know, a business is a business if it makes money. Otherwise, it's not a business. So we tried. We tried really hard. Our product got better and better through the 10 years. Um, and some would say, you know, having 20 million in sales was great, but it's not. You know, not once you, you put in your initial investment, um, which was significant, um, and if you haven't managed to recoup that, if you really haven't managed to recoup it in the first three, you're probably not. Um, and we, yeah, we held on. We held on for a while because we thought, you know, at any given time we could get a boost. And obviously, you know, playing related, if I go and win the Open or the Masters or something like that, then potentially you have, uh, you have a business which could, could grow significantly very quickly and open up doors of doing a licensing deal in other territories um, and being able to grow that business, that would have been a viable option. But, you know, I'm not in the Masters. I'm not in the Open. I'm not in the WGCs right now. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, really until that really turns around, we're not in a, in a position. The website was doing okay, but... Okay is not good enough. Indeed. All right, let's talk about Medina. Fast forward to Saturday afternoon. I think people forget that Rory hit a beautiful three iron into the 13th hole, made birdie, helped get you guys back in that match. At, at that, did that give you a little inkling at that moment that, okay, this is well, actually salvageable? Well, that match was, a again, that match was, um, <clears throat> was looking like a very boring match. Uh, we were struggling. Neither of us could really make a birdie. Um, and that match at, at that stage was almost getting away from us. You know, until that point, you know, I hit it in the left trap, he hit it to about 25 feet, which was a great shot. Um, you know, he, you know, by holding that putt was a massive boost we needed. We spoke about it on the 10th hole. We spoke that we had to get something going in this match because the match, you know, it, it really was... You know, there was, there was no energy in the group. There was no energy coming from the crowd. It was very quiet, from, certainly from a European perspective, um, and something needed to spark up. So, you know, the bit of Rory sparking up at the right time, I think was absolutely huge. I mean, it, was, it, was, um, it really was a massive moment um, and a turning point in that match, which was enough to give us the energy and I guess, um, you know, I, I guess in somewhat, you know, the upper hand moving into the last few holes. So we, we all know, you know, you birdied the last five holes that, that sent the team into Sunday singles with massive momentum, pulled off the greatest comeback ever. We know what yeah, happened. The, the putt is right there if you want to look at it. <laughs> I, I may fondle it here in a moment. But so not what happened, but I'm more interested in like how it felt like. You know, you see when, when Steph Curry, you know, goes off in the fourth quarter of a playoff game, everyone talks about the zone. We know what it looks like, but what, is, what does it feel like, the way you play those last five holes? What does it feel like? Um, as corny and horrible and cheesy as it, as it is to say, to say that it just happens, like it just happened. 
I know there was a lot of work to do in amongst those five birdies, but as as silly as it sounds to say, listen, you're gonna you're gonna birdie the last five holes, and that does sound silly on paper. You know, they were they were relatively easy birdies. You know, an up and down birdie on the par five was a relatively easy birdie. Up and down from the back trap at 15 was a relatively easy birdie. Um, I think it got a little difficult at 16, you know, to hold a left to right kind of 25 foot putt down across the green. That was kind of the most, I think the biggest, I think that was the biggest shot apart from the last putt that happened in those last five holes because that was the trickiest out of all of those putts. You know, left to right, 25, 30 feet downhill is not an easy, not an easy, an easy ask. Um, I think what made it a little easier was Michael Jordan being there, kind of at me from, and he's been there in previous Ryder Cups, but being at me from the 13th hole, we, we kind of picked him up in the match. He was kind of, um, he was kind of back behind the tee and uh, I caught eye contact with him um, and I thought, oh, here we go. This is, you know, this is Jordan doing his thing again. And um, What's he saying? I mean, he's, he's talking he wasn't trash. Really, he wasn't really saying. It was just a case of, you know, he, his presence um, and just the case of him being, like he, he was just in, he was in, he was in close enough proximity to know why he was there, yeah. right? Michael Jordan being in position is an intimidating situation. You know, I'm a Michael Jordan fan, right? I'm, I love basketball. So, you know, MJ being there was, 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 was giving me a buzz. It really was. And, you know, then as that match was closing out, you know, he, he was becoming more, more prominent and his position of where he was standing was becoming more and more kind of invasive, shall I say. Like and he's I crowding was, the tee box? What he, he was close to the tee box. He was, um, the closest he got was when he kind of gave me a little jab in the chest going from the 16th green after I've hold the 25 footer downhill left to right. I'm walking off the green and I just see him. He's right in my walkway as I walk to the 17th tee. And he kind of just wags his finger and kind of shakes his head as if to say, you son of a, you know, how dare you hold that? Like, how dare you hold that putt? And as I was walking past him, he gives me a little jab. And I'm like, you know, saying to myself, you're going to have to hit me harder than that. <laughs> so, you know, that was as, you know, he was close. I mean, he was really, really, really close. Um, did it almost help though? Instead of focusing on that, all of Europe and the fate of the Ryder Cup is in your hands. Now you're just trying to stick it to one guy. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, I was trying to stick it to everyone, but I mean, it was like, <laughs> you know, how how dare he be in my space? How dare he be in my zone? How dare he be on my court, giving me shit? So I'm like, okay, if that's how you want to play it, this is what you're going to get. And then hit, I hit it pretty close on 17 to about 12 feet, and I remember Elizabeth being on that tee box. And uh, Zach Johnson hit an incredible shot to about three feet, four feet, just below the hole. In my opinion, was a gimme um, as I walk off the tee. Obviously, you're going to see it in, in that moment. But 
mentally I'd given him the putt to knowing myself that I have to go and hold this 12-footer. Um, you know, Alazabal walking off the tee says, um, okay, this putt breaks, it breaks a little bit right to left. So I'm thinking, did I really want to hear that? Yeah. Like, shit. What happens if my ball was on a slightly different line to the putt he's just seen? Did that person pull the putt? Did he really view it? Because it's hard as a captain to get in close enough to see the, see the putt break. So, um, you know, all of these things going through my mind as I'm walking down 17. Is it a right to left putt? Is it a straight putt? Did he see the, did he see the angle properly? Should I take his, you know, his word that it's going to break? Anyway, I stand up over the shot. I've... You know, I, I read it as a slight right to left putt. I hit it right to left and, you know, thankfully it went in the middle. Um, and uh, Zach Johnson managed to, you know, to nudge his little three-footer in. And then we, we're all going up the last. You, you just hit your inhaler. Are you getting this excited in the telling? <clears throat> no, I've just got um, allergies are kicking. Um, it'd be better, it would actually be better if you would just say, yeah, I'm so excited I'm having trouble no, breathing. No, I'm not crying yet. I'm not, I'm not getting that emotional. So after you make the play, are you looking for Jordan now? Or like, do you want to like get in his space now? Yeah, but he kind of, he kind of, um, again, he, he, I didn't see him at that moment. Um, not that I was really looking for him. Okay. It would have been nice to have, uh, to have given him a little bit of stick there. But obviously, you know, going up the last hole was, um, you know, that, 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 was, that was a tough closeout. I mean, you know, the whole team is getting dusky, it's getting dark. The whole team are on the back of, you know, the back of the 18th. European team on the back right corner of the green. The US team are on the back left of the green. This time, Duffner hits a shot to about four feet. Rory's come up just short right of the green. It's puttable, but um, it's probably about a 30-foot putt. And I've hit a shot to about 15 feet. Um, Rory leaves his putt short. And now it's obviously over to the US team. They decide that uh is going to hold out his putt first to obviously put the pressure on us. He obviously converts his putt. And now I obviously face that 15-footer, um, which was... Uh, it, it was interesting, you know, to, to evaluate the putt, do the 360 around the hole, to kind of crouch down. I knew the putt was always going to move a little bit right to left um, because of where my ball was on the green. But it was like... The whole 40 seconds, I'm guessing it took to hit the putt, seemed like it took three minutes. Because, you know, I view the whole of the US team, Captain Davis, and I kind of look at the whole European team, albeit that all happened in a split second, but I kind of like, sure. you know, I kind of could almost place where everyone was standing by stand up and hit the putt in the middle. And it was just, you know, at that minute, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold this putt and allow the European team to go, to go nuts. You had no doubt you were going to make it. No doubt. I mean, I just, I was so amped up to hold that putt to, to send the team crazy because that would have been such a momentum blow to the US team and a huge boost to the European team. To have that putt go in would have been incredible, and it was. I mean... You know, we took a lot of energy from that 
from that closeout, you know, into the locker room, um, and onto the you know into the team room that night, and obviously back on, onto the golf course the following morning. I mean, everybody wants to make that putt, but I think a lot of guys get out of their routine. They get distracted by everything that's surrounding. How how in that moment do you get out of your own way and just hit the putt? It all happens in slow mo. I said it. I mean, it feels like it took four minutes, but it doesn't. You know, you just um, if that's the zone, if that's what people discuss is the zone, uh, I then, in my opinion, nothing was affected. Nothing was going to affect how I approached that putt, and nothing did affect that putt. So, um, you know, I've I'd like to recreate that intensity, pressure, excitement, adrenaline, whatever it is you want to call it, I'd love to recreate that, you know, in the next 10 years of my playing career. Because if that's the zone, it's pretty cool. To be able to zone out everything else that's happening around you, to focus 100%, to, to read the putt correct, to hit the right pace on the right line, you know, when certain situations like that happen, it all seems too easy. Well, so, let, so less than a year later at the Open, 2013, you go eagle, birdie, 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 and you're flying up the board. You're basically ahead of Phil by a couple shots, and then you play the last six holes and one over. So how does it feel different when you can't close it out? Well, you was, I mean, I was getting a, you know, I was getting a bit of that buzz as the Eagle Birdie 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 was happening. You kind of find this, you know, that kind of adrenaline rush starts to come back. Um, it would have been very interesting to have taken a reading of adrenaline at the Ryder Cup. And it would have been interesting to take a level of reading, you know, after those 12 holes have been played. Um, because I guess in some respects it would have been getting close. Yeah. Uh, I think the the key the key on the following uh, the 13th hole was when I mi- I missed a putt. It was a good putt. It just lipped out. That opportunity there was a chance to have got a step closer. You know, you can look back at rounds of go- golf and say, if that shot, if that putt would have gone in, things may have been a little different. Um, and that was a bit of a momentum stopper. When I was in position, I hit a great shot, had 15 feet, you know, up the hill, slight right to left putt, and I missed it. You know, that right there was a bit of a body blow. But why did you miss that putt when you can't miss that at the right? Well, or you know, you just you don't you know you don't choose the right line and pace. That's too boring an answer. It, well, it just it's, there's no other answer I can give to you. I mean, I'd love to turn around and say I chose the right line and pace and made a poor stroke, but. You know, I I didn't quite read it as I thought. Um, and you're human. You're going to make an error. That was an error. It was a misjudgment. I didn't read the puck quite right. Uh, and because of that, it just kind of stopped the momentum. And then it's hard to pick it back up again, especially when you make bogey from one of the following holes. Tough. Is that the last time you felt in that zone? Um. Yeah, I mean, probably. That might be the you know, the most intense it was getting. Um, 
you know, I guess not winning for that length of time. I can't think of another event where I was getting very close. I guess at Honda a couple of years ago when I had a five-shot lead. I think at that at that time I was very close. I mean, that that's some of the best golf I've, I've ever played. Um, to be that far ahead of the field and then obviously that unravels. But, um, yeah, I guess in terms of the event being as big as it was, the Open Championship, being in contention to win, the buzz, the home fans. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the biggest buzz since. Well, I have to ask you, you, and forgive the question, but you seem to hit more shanks than most other elite players. Now, I know the wear on your... On yeah, your, you, can your have irons. At, you could have a look at every single set of irons. And it's closer I've, to the heel, right? It's very close to the heel. And I've, um, you know, it's, there will be, there's obviously a fault in my swing where I will, I will kind of, I dip slightly into my swing on, on given times. Now, when you already hit, I mean, if you look at the wear spots on all of my old sets of irons that are in this room, you will see they're all very close to the hill. Some players have it slightly toe-orientated, some players have it out the middle, some players have it out the hill. With having that sweet spot close to the hill brings your chance of a shank, obviously, a lot higher percentage than someone that has a wear spot out the toe. Now, especially if you're gonna move slightly forward into the shot, it's gonna happen. Um, and I've done it often. I've done it. I've done it at the Masters when Fanny was caddying. I've done it four times that week, and still had a big finish. Um, well, how do you shake it off? That's my question. Because well, you just laugh it off. You just—I mean, it, it really pisses me off. Like it really, really pisses me off. Um, and it's been—it's been—you uh, know—it's—it's it's been hard at times because it's happened at the wrong time. Honda, par three, fifth hole, bad timing. You know, I was going to play a soft shot. And at the time, you know, I went through a little period where I was hitting these little three-quarter soft shots. And that had happened a couple of times. So had the yardage been slightly different, I may not have been in that situation where I would have, I would have hit a shank. But it did. Uh, and it happens. Well, your caddy Terry told me that if, if you've had a dozen shanks, he thinks you saved par eight or nine times. Yeah, I probably have. I mean, I did it, I did it in, in Dubai at the start of this year. Right. Uh, shanked it and then they obviously called play because it was too windy and then I got up and down from 53 yards I mean to me that's that's one of the more incredible stats in golf because if the shame the mortification of a shank and then just step up and say yeah but it's not that bad a shot is it I mean it is bad the result bad yeah but the actual swing itself was about half inch from perfection sure so it's a big half inch though yeah but I mean most most amateurs fear the shank and I do, I do in some respects, because when it just happens, you can't get it out of your mind for, for, a, for a short period of time. So you think you're going to do it again. But, um, you know, it, it happens if, you're, if your sweet spot is a little bit in the hill. It's just going to happen. I mean, it's just one of those things. It, you know, I'll, I'll do it again at some stage and, you know, I'll just laugh it off and continue. All right. Before I let you go, a couple stories I want to, I want to hear from you. The Volvo Masters at Valderrama, rain, rain chased you guys off the course. You come back the next morning for a restart. You show up at the range. They're out of golf balls. 
Do you yeah. know this story? Yeah, very well, yeah. Terry tells it better than I. <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, I'm teeing off on the 10th hole, and it's right by the clubhouse. So uh, I don't need to warm up for as long as other players that are going to have to get buggies and shuttles out to other holes. So I kind of leave it a bit later. I have a slightly later breakfast. I walk onto the range. The range is full, like it is whenever there is a, a rain delay and obviously there's a restart. And you obviously run the risk of um, trying to find a spot on a, on a small range. Well, it had rained so much at Valderrama, the practice ground was really wet and all the practice balls were plugging. So they were massively down on, on the number of balls they had. Uh, and this was one of those instances. I go to walk out to Terry, he's found a spot, and I say to him, where are the balls? And he says, there isn't any. So I said, where are the practice balls? He said, there isn't any, they're all plugging. So hot-headed as I was, um, back in the day, I, I see one of the rules officials walking towards um, one of the players' tents, and I shout his name, and, you know, I, uh, I screamed at him and shouted at him, I said... I said, where's the practice balls? I think I probably threw another word in there, but I'm not going to say what it was. Where's the practice balls? And he kind of pointed out towards the range, and obviously all the balls were down the bottom of the range. So I took objection to it, and uh, there was an upturned bucket sitting a couple of feet away, and he must have been about 20 yards away, and I've taken a run-up to this bucket, and I'm going to try and kick it with my left foot, and I'm going to see if I can hit this bucket <laughs> and, and, and hit it in the vicinity of the, uh, of the referee. Well, I was doing it with my left foot. The ground was really wet. I'm right-footed as a football player, but the bucket was kind of to my left. So I kind of, I can kick the ball two-footed. But as I've gone to kick this, this ball, this bucket really hard, my right foot slips a tiny bit. So therefore I end up kicking my, my right foot out from underneath me. I'm kind of levitating at about three feet <laughs> off the ground, land in this splat of mud where I was standing. And I kind of almost, I remember, because I almost like sprung back up onto my feet in sheer horror if anyone saw me, um, two of which Terry just literally fell about laughing. So yeah, brilliant story, made a complete arse of myself. You really showed that referee. Yeah, I showed him. Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a, yeah. It was shocking. But it's a very, I mean, it was funny. Very, very funny. Your beautiful tartan trousers. Uh, was I wearing tartan? Uh, I'm not sure if I would have been quite tartan by then. No, but they were, they were slightly soiled. I'll say that much. Did that affect your, your, your golf to have soiled trousers? Your whole self-image? No, it was good. I think, I think I played well after that. <laughs> Okay, last story. This one makes me laugh too. So, Players' Championship, around 2010. Mm. You go out early on Thursday. You birdie three of the first eight holes. You have the lead. You come to the ninth hole, par five. Lay up to 92 yards. And behind... This is early on in the shot link year. They used to put the boards right behind the green. Yeah. And they start flashing some numbers at you. Yeah. So what happens? I... I'm standing over my shot. I've got this, whether it's 87 or 92, I can't remember the exact yardage, but um, whatever the yardage was, I've laid up to a distance and the boards were, I mean, they're bright and um, that's slightly in eye view. 
So as I stand up over the shot, the board changes and it comes up with like a stat like it normally does. Ian Poulter, proximity to the hole, 97 yards, say, or 92 yards. Um, and it gives you where you are out of all the other players. So it says average proximity to the hole from this, from this yardage was like 27 feet placed... 182 on tour. So I'm like, that's bullshit. There's no way I'm 182nd on tour from this yardage. So I, I back off my shot. And I go back into my shot. And I knife it straight over the green, straight in the back bunker. You just hit it on the forehead. I just, I completely thin it. Anyway, it's over the back of the green. And I'm like, did you just see that? Did you see that? And Terry's like, what? Did I see what? I've gone, did you see the board? It's put me off. I'm like, I was 92 yards away and it says I'm 182 on tour from, from that distance. He just starts laughing and says, you're going to be 192 now. <laughs> I mean, just... So instead of sympathising, he just decided to rub it in a bit more but brilliant very funny he loves telling that story it's a classic it's a beauty well, i thought you was going to say at tpc sawgrass where i accidentally threw my ball in the water on the fourth let's hear that one too uh back in the days of um when my old old physio was working for me i play on the four i i, I if anyone can remember the fourth hole short par four water to the left of the green um, the pin was middle left on the lower tier. I hit my ball to about 30 feet on the upper tier, which was really frustrating. Had it been a yard left, it would have perhaps rolled down to about four feet, but I was really pissed off that I kind of left it up, up, up on the top tier. Anyway, I've got no chance now of hitting my putt anywhere inside eight feet. So uh, I hit my putt, and decide to literally walk straight after my ball. So I walk after my ball, it's, it's still moving, I walk onto the lower tier, and I kind of predict where my ball's gonna finish. So I'm waiting for it to come to a stop, and I'm really angry, really pissed off. I mark it quickly, and I kind of swipe my hand past my coin to pick my ball up but as I swipe it so quick and fast, I don't really have it in my fingertips. It's kind of right, at the, right on the tips of my fingers and it just pops out my hand and plops in the hazard. <laughs> well, as we know that the rule book says you have to finish with the ball you started. And if you lose your ball, then you have to replace it. It's going to be a two-shot penalty. So I know where it is. It's in the hazard but how do I get my ball back? So I kind of shout my physio who was walking around at the time. I said, listen, do me a favour, please. <laughs> get in the hazard and see if you can find my ball. So he kind of, he agrees. The crowd are laughing. He strips off to his boxer shorts and a t-shirt. In he waits. And I kind of say, right a bit, left a bit, right a bit. And it's all silty. It's all that, you know, it's all dark. He can't really see any of the balls. And he kind of reaches down, picks this ball up, Titleist four, my markings. Amazing. The chances of that happening. So I, I end up, he throws it to me. 
put it down, hold my eight footer, make par, finish the round of golf. And as I look on the, you know, when, when you finish and you see where you finish, two shots at the time would have been two shots worse, would have been $20,000 difference. So, um, so I bought him and his wife a nice gift <laughs> just to say thanks. So it worked out well. Well, Ian, you're clearly a good sport. Thank you for uh, taking the time to do this. You're absolutely welcome. Are you sure? You know no, listen, no, you're welcome. No regrets? No regrets. No regrets. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't said anything. I don't believe I've said anything that's going to give me any heat. So I think we're good. Well, we survived a leaf blower, a ringing telephone. This has been a harrowing podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening and tuning in. I will just give you a little tease. I've already taped a couple others this week and I'm going to hit the LPGA event in Carlsbad on the horizon. So a bunch more podcasts coming your way soon. I hope you will listen. This is Alan Shipnuck signing off from Ian Poulter's museum in Lake Nona, Florida. Mm-hmm.